0: Hey everyone, here on the Dan and Joe Sports Show. We're going to party like it's 1999, and 2004, and 2011, and 2014, and now 2023, just like the UConn Huskies are, with their fifth national championship in men's college basketball in the last 25 years. Uh, As always, I'm Dan.
1: And I'm Joe.
0: Uh, Joe, we, we were talking about it before the show. In this, I feel like UConn in men's, not in women's, but in men's is definitely the most disregarded program that's the most successful. And now I think it's undeniable that they have been the college, men's college basketball program in the last 25 years.
1: No, they really have been. It's been kind of sneaky, good, and dominant because I think that they were on the radar so much with Jim Calhoun and him having NBA-ready players You you have Rip Hamilton, Emeka Okafor, you have Ben Gordon. You go through the years with Kimba Walker, Shabazz Napier. But after Calhoun retired, you know, prior to Napier getting there and Ollie winning the championship, I think that with the exception of that 2014 season, they kind of fell off the, you know, national radar. Uh, They had some tough years, uh, I think on probation a couple of times. And then now, you know, Dan Hurley out of nowhere has just kind of uh, rebuilt this program.
0: Yeah, and he looks like he's built a program that's made to last. I mean, he's got a lot of young talent on this team. They seem like they were so deep. And something that just drew my eye from the very beginning is this was a tournament that going in. He kind of felt like most people were saying it's either Alabama or it's Houston. And I heard UConn is kind of like a, a dark horse a few times. Um, you know, people talked about the fact that they began the season really strong and ended the season really strong. that's usually a good indicator of how a team's going to do in the tournament. And they had risen to be number one in the country and they had wins, I think, over Gonzaga and Alabama during the regular season, which were good indicators. Um, and they were one that I remember I I made sure to watch them because they're a team that I always kind of think about picking during the NCAA tournament bracket, and when I watched him in that first game, I was like, this team is for real. Especially when I saw how good Sonogo was and Calcaterra and Klingon and just all the length they had, and not only their ability to score from so many different areas, um, including with uh Jordan Hawkins, the, the air fryer, um, their defense that they had. And after I watched that first game, I remember texting uh, my friend Hunter, who's been on who's the course from Beach Ball Properties, is the sponsor of the show. And told them that this was a team that could beat Alabama. I was like, UConn is one that you need to worry about. And the, I picked them to go to the Elite Eight. And I think I had them losing to like Marquette or something. And I remember after watching that first game, I was like, I should have picked a UConn to win it all. And they just got better and better every single game. And they ended up winning the national championship by never having a game that uh, I think the closest margin of victory they had was 15 points.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's accurate. And, you know, they didn't even play their best game Monday night. You know, they were kind of sloppy. They really didn't have to. Like, I I really don't think anybody was going to beat them as hot as they were. You know, I I hated it for San Diego State. You know, I was personally rooting for them to win. But, you know, they went ice cold, you know, from shooting. Uh, A lot of that had to do, of course, with uh, UConn's defense and size and length uh, and the, you know, versatility and depth of UConn. I think that was kind of understated. And I think a lot of people kind of understated how good UConn could defend in general. But what what I've noticed, you know, we think about UConn, but when I look at San Diego State, what I have noticed um, in some of these uh, games when you've had like you know uh, Butler, Oregon, Zaga that comes from like a mid-major conference and they take on you know a power school like UConn in the national championship game, seems like a lot of times um, they just don't have the depth or they get kind of that – they're not as physical. And I don't always think it's because they're not as talented, but I heard Eric Musselman talk about it about last year during the tournament that when he played at Nevada, he could kind of tell a difference. When you get to the tournament, you're playing teams that, um, you know, year in, uh, throughout the season in their conference, they were more battle-tested than you. Mm. So it's not just about talent. And I think that sometimes you have a team like San Diego State who played so well – and, you know, clearly beat Alabama, beat FAU in an emotional game. And I think to some extent they kind of run out of steam um, at some point.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point, Joe. I mean, the Big East has always been such a great basketball conference. And this year I felt like they had a little bit of a, you know, a, a regeneration where people got the interest back again. You saw UConn having a great regular season, but they ended up being finishing fourth in the Big East. Marquette uh, finished number one. Shaka Smart did a really great job. Uh, They had a number two seed. Uh, Villanova, even without Jay Wright, was good. I think they were in like the five or six line. Providence had a good season. They were a nine seed. And there was, uh, I think, Seton Hall, you know, in their first year with having the coach that was at St. Peter's, did a pretty good job. They got close to making the tournament. And, you know, the Big East uh, definitely, you know, continued their basketball trend in UConn just show, just showed how great this conference was because they didn't even win it and they were this dominant during the tournament and they finished fourth in the big east
1: absolutely i mean they're just so tested night in and night out in creighton just as easily could have been playing them in the national championship game with how close that game was against san diego states so you could have had theoretically an all big east uh, championship affair so yeah i mean the the credit goes to to uconn you know i like I said, I loved the story of San Diego State, loved uh, Brian Dutcher. I thought he's just a, a class act. Um, I also just enjoyed how they won the game against FAU. I thought that was a, a classic uh, semifinal game with buzzer beater. And then, you know, Miami and Jim Larinaga. they had, I think, a really good season by their standards, obviously, didn't make it to their first ever Final Four, but they just ran into a buzzsaw in uh, Connecticut just like everybody else.
0: Exactly, Joe. I mean, I think that when I saw Connecticut beat Gonzaga by 28 points, that was when you knew that no one else had a chance.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that, that was the the clear indicator. You know, if they couldn't hang with them, it was just everybody else that could hang with them was out of the field. And and even if some of the teams like Alabama or Purdue had not, you know, got upset in earlier rounds, I, I still think they probably would have ultimately lost to UConn as hot as they were.
0: That's what I think too, Joe. I mean, I, I think that, you know, any Alabama fan that's sitting there still re- stewing over the fact that they lost to San Diego State, I think they should realize they would have lost to UConn too. And I think that applies to to Houston, uh, to Kansas losing to Arkansas. All these teams, all of them would have gotten, would have lost by 10 plus points to this UConn team.
1: Yeah, they, they were just that powerful. And, you know, you talk about the reign that they've had um, in the sport and their dominance. They're not going away right now. Um, I saw them already in the uh, way-too-early preseason number one poll uh, for for their ranked number one going into next season with some of the players that will return even if they lose Sonogo and Hawkins. Uh, Dan Hurley, it's just amazing to me what he's done. And I talked about Brian Dutcher being a class act. I think that Dan Hurley is the type of personality and professionalism that the sport needs desperately right now when you've had the departure of so many uh, legendary head coaches
0: and he's got just such a, you know, a good look to him. Like he, you know, he he does the whole old school, like kind of code and tie look. He kind of looks almost professorial out there. And you can tell he's just a student of the game. And he always is very even keeled with everything he does. You don't ever see him get too high or too low. And he seems like he has control of every basketball game that he's in. And when you watch him, like you just look at him, you're like, this guy is someone who's going to win multiple national championships and, Who's going to end up being, you know, his brother is in the college football, college basketball Hall of Fame for being a player, but he's going to be there, I think, for a coach.
1: That's true, and um, I think that his career is going to be interesting to see where he goes. I think he's fifty three years old now, if I'm not mistaken. I know, I know, early fifties, I believe, and I think that you know he's got a program that's a blue blood now, and I think that you look back five years ago when he was hired. By, um, uh C- Connecticut from Rhode Island, that was kind of a hire that didn't get, you know, the number of headlines that it probably deserved.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, now we're talking about UConn with their fifth national championship in the last 25 years. I think it's amazing that they're 5-0 in national championship games. They're like the anti-Buffalo Bills.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's so tough to beat them because, like I alluded to earlier, you know, they didn't even have their best performance Monday night. They still win. Like, it reminded me a lot of their win against Butler in 2011 with Kimball Walker when they only scored 53 points, and they still won. I mean, they just – they can come at you, you know, from, from so many different players.
0: Yeah, and, and Joe, what, what I saw in their performance on Monday night was an incredible defensive performance because they realized that San Diego State couldn't make a three-pointer – and that uh, basically any kind of jump shot was not going to happen. So they just basically put all their bigs down low, and they said, all right, try and drop on us and see what happens. And San Diego State, it was like running into a brick wall. They kept doing it over and over again, and it really showed that their lack of having any kind of outside game was not going to work against UConn, and they were never going to win that game.
1: Right, I mean, the only recipe I could see for a team being able to beat UConn in this tournament would have been just getting blistering hot from behind the three-point line. Like I heard one analyst, I think, say during the game that San Diego State's just going to have to run down the court and just take the first best shot available. Well, they don't need to waste, you know, the clock. But that was kind of against their strategy. You know, they're a team that likes to milk the clock, play gritty defense. And it's just, it's just, you know, um, an impossible task against UConn.
0: What's interesting, Joe, is the one team that you would think based on their style of play would have a good chance against UConn is the one that UConn beat by 28 points in the Elite Eight, and that's Gonzaga. Gonzaga is the kind of team that can shoot it from anywhere on the court. They move at a fast pace, and they got beat by 28 points by UConn. I mean, that just tells you that there was no beating this team.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that yeah, the, what hurt them there, too, is I think that the emotional letdown. Coming off of the UCLA win, I think it was very similar. Um, you know, not necessarily from a matchup standpoint, but I think San Diego State had some of that too. You know, like I'm not saying they would have won, but I think coming, it's impossible to come down, back down from that high of beating FAU on the buzzer beater too.
0: Oh, absolutely, man. That was the game of the tournament. Uh, you know. Uh, They had to come back from 13 down against FAU. The shot to win it, uh, of course, was made by the same player that broke Reggie Miller's high school record for scoring in the state of California. And it was very well defended. And that was maybe the best jump shot I think I've ever seen in college basketball for a winner.
1: Well, I love the fact, too, that, you know, that's like a real buzzer beater when you're trailing, like you're behind by one Mm -hmm. point and you push it at the end. Like that's, you know, that's better than a buzzer beater with a tie game.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It was was win or lose on that shot. And, I mean, it literally got out of his hand with, like, what, 0.2 seconds left. And, of course, the buzzer was off when he was in the air, and that's the best kind of one. Mm
1: -hmm. Definitely.
0: And, Joe, I mean, you know, I think that we can't lose sight of what Brian Dutcher was able to do and where San Diego State is in the sports. We're talking about where UConn is. I mean, obviously, right now, they are a B program in the last 25 years. But over the last five years, I saw the stat come up during the game, and the more I thought about it, it made sense that over the last five years, uh, San Diego State has the third best winning percentage of any college basketball program. I think number one was Gonzaga, number two was Houston, and then number three was there at San Diego State. And you think about it, every year – they make the tournament. I mean, every year they're usually above a sixth seed, which playing on the mountain rest is not easy to do. And it just shows the, you know how well they've done during the regular season and the fact that it shouldn't have really shocked us that much that they made it to this point.
1: No, it, it really shouldn't in retrospect. And, uh, you know, Brian Dutcher even said, I don't know if I believe this just yet, but he claims that next year's team with the recruits he has coming in may even be more talented I guess he's talking especially from an offensive standpoint with a recruiting class. But when I look back at the last few years for San Diego State, I feel really good for their program to make it to the final four in the championship game. Because I know a lot of people were talking about the fact that they missed out on the 2020 tournament when they would have been a one or a two seed. And honestly, that team was as good as anybody. And so I felt really good for them to you know, get that opportunity this year.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were a team that was worthy of getting to a Final Four. I mean, you think ten years ago they had that team with Kawhi Leonard that was so good, and I think that actually may have been a team that lost to UConn and and didn't yeah and didn't make the Final yeah, sweet Four. Sweet sixteen. Yeah, they all, they lost in the Sweet sixteen to to UConn, who ultimately ended up winning the national championship that year too. And you know something else too that was interesting. I'm kind of going off on a tangent now about conference realignment. I think that this show that the Pac-12 to have any hopes of surviving, they need to be making that call to San Diego State and doing it now. It's in a huge market. It's in a great city. I love the city of San Diego. I have cousins that live there. When I was a kid, I used to go and visit. I thought it was the coolest place. I mean, it's just gorgeous. You have mountains. You have the ocean. And you have a great temperature. It stays between like seventy and eighty all year round. And San Diego State, they've been so good at basketball, and they've also been really good at football too. I mean, I think them entering into the Pac-12, they're a top-five football program in the Pac-12 as they're playing right now. And I just think that, you know, if you're going to have any chance of surviving as a conference with USC and UCLA leaving, you need to go ahead and snag San Diego State because somebody else will.
1: Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense to add them. Um, You look at their basketball prowess, football team being so competitive. And then also, you know, they got a lot of history in baseball – with Tony Gwynn playing there and Steven Strasburg. And so their athletic program in general kind of quietly has had you know, some really big-name players.
0: Absolutely. I remember it was a school that I like considered, too, just because I liked San Diego so much. And I ended up staying closer to home, but it was one that definitely has a big draw. And I just think that if it could have the support of the Pac-12 behind it, they're going to get even better in most of these sports.
1: Mm-hmm. I-, I can see that.
0: And on that same vein, Joe, you know, we were talking about – the great decision that the UConn made to get out of the uh, to get out of the AAC and instead move into uh, instead move into the big East for basketball. It did kind of leave their football program in a lurch. They had a good season last year, but I think about, you know, when the big 10 made this huge push, not this latest one to get UCLA and USC, but when they added in Maryland and Rutgers I wonder if they made a mistake getting Rutgers and not taking UConn. Because you think about UConn's, they're, of course, their men's basketball program, five championships in the last 25 years. Their women's, I mean, it may be, what, 12 11. national champion 11. Okay, 11 it's national championships. Five. Yeah. Uh, they got 11 titles with Gino Auriemma. I mean, you know, there's been other teams come up for a few years. Kim Mulkey at Baylor. Dawn Staley at South Carolina. Uh, you know, now you got you know LSU winning one, but the team that consistently is always there over the last 25 years, Yukon Women's, you would get both those in the Big Ten. Their football program's had some some ups and downs, but I would certainly say that it's at least you know, on the same level as Rutgers. And to me, if the idea of having Rutgers join your conferences, you want to get the 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 Northeastern market, the New England market, and The New York market, UConn does that because you have people that commute to New York City every day that live in the state of Connecticut, also ones that commute to Boston. And I think you actually get a better program that gets the same result in terms of media. And I don't know why they chose Rutgers over UConn.
1: Yeah, I almost wonder, you know, if UConn really chose the Big East for them. Like, I think that there was a lot of discussion about UConn. Once they joined the AAC, their fan base was kind of, outraged over the lack of the rivalries that they used to have. I think you may have mentioned it earlier, either before the show or during this segment, you know, they miss the rivalries that are so natural with St. John's with Providence um, with Georgetown. And so now they have that back in the big East conference. When it comes to basketball, I just assume watch that is just about any other conference with the, the, quality of the, the play that we see. And I love the fact that the tournament the conference tournament is still in uh, Madison Square
0: Garden. Yeah, Jay, outside of uh, you know watching SEC tournament, the one that I've always watched is the Big East tournament because it always seems to have such fanfare to it at Madison Square Garden. I remember I watched the Big East tournament where UConn and Kemba Walker, they were ninth, finished ninth in the league and then won the tournament and made this great run through all these really excellent teams that were in the Big East. And ended up, of course, you know, winning the national championship that year. But that kind of tournament gets that excitement going, and I think they have the best tournament of any conference in college basketball.
1: No, they really do. Just the last, um, just kind of random side note, I'll say. For the life of me, though, I can't figure out how DePaul is such a bad basketball program because they used to have a lot of tradition. They're still in the Big East, but they haven't won anything in like eighteen years. I, I can't figure that out.
0: I almost, like, forgot that they were in there. I mean, they're like that Catholic school that's kind of, like, forgotten about amidst, you know, Creighton, who's become a real good power lately, and then, of course, the classic powers of Georgetown, Seton Hall, St. John's, which St. John's, I'm excited to see where they're going now with hiring Rick Pitino. I think that's kind of a cool, like, maybe last stop for him. You know, St. John's is a program that, uh, you know, they were great in the 80s. I think they ended up – they made – one one or two national championship appearances. I don't think we've ever won it before. I remember the Charles Barkley Auburn team. That was their great upset was over first seeded St. John's, uh, and that was kind of what you know put Charles Barkley on the map. And of course, Georgetown. You know the Patrick Ewing experiment didn't work very good, but now they have a uh, coach Cooley from Ever in Providence left one Big East team to go to the other one. And, you know, Providence has been doing so good under him. And I just think that you have so much depth right now in the Big East. And, of course, I'm so excited to see what's going to happen uh, with Seton Hall with the St. Peter's coach. The got a young talent there.
1: Yeah, I mean, just so many storylines and just so many great head coaches. And I, I think that Rick Pitino said in his press conference he wants to try to take St. John's to a Final Four in his last hurrah.
0: Yeah, I think that's a cool last hurrah for him because it, it made a perfect sense. He didn't have to move. He was already living on Long Island when he was uh, coaching at the school that he's at right now um, at, at Iona, and so he doesn't even have to move. So it just kind of, like, fit perfectly for him. And I think that would be, like, a great last legacy to take a program that's really been dormant for a long time now uh, back to their former prowess of being one of the greats in college basketball. Absolutely. Uh, But, yes, with UConn right now, definitely, you know, I think that they should be mentioned as a top five college basketball program of all time, if not a top three, because you look at where they're at right now, you have UCLA with 11 national championships, Kentucky's got eight, then North Carolina has six, but then UConn's sitting right there with Duke and Indiana at five, and they're ahead of other, like, teams like, you know, Kansas that are always considered – among the ones that everybody wants to watch out for. And they've done it in the last 25 years. And so now in my mind, uh, you know, when you're talking about the Blue Bloods, you're making a huge mistake if you're not mentioning UConn in there as a top four, top five overall program.
1: Yeah, and just to build off of that point, I mean, to put it in perspective, since UConn won their first national championship, UCLA has not won a national title. Indiana has not won a national title since, I think, 1987. So. I mean, UConn definitely has made their case.
0: Yeah, and Joe, I mean, the most successful program after them over the last 25 years is a tie between Duke and North Carolina at three. So not only has nobody else won five, nobody else has even won four. And so all these programs that every year you want to talk about Duke, they've only won three in the last 25 years. North Carolina, only three in the last 25 years. Kansas, only two in the last 25 years. And then you want to talk about Syracuse, they've only ever won one. I mean, Kentucky really Villanova,
1: Villanova would be up the next uh, uh, layer, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think Villanova has been more successful over the last twenty-five years than Kansas has. I would say probably you'd have UConn, then Duke in North Carolina, then Villanova, then Kansas.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's really crazy when you start thinking about it. Like you kind of just redefine maybe the, or it should maybe redefine the definition of who qualifies for a blue blood.
0: Absolutely, and and Joe, Kentucky has only won one national championship in the last 25 years. How crazy is that?
1: Yeah, that really is surprising.
0: Yeah, so congrats to UConn. You can party like it's 1999, 2011, 2004, 2014, and now 2023. And Joe, uh, switching over to women's basketball, which usually would be something we're talking about with UConn, a really amazing final between LSU – in Iowa, and of course Caitlin Clark still got hers, but the overall team strength and coaching of Kim Mulkey got it done for the Bayou Bengals, and where she wins her fourth national championship overall, but her first one at LSU, and only her second season as coach.
1: Yeah, just an incredible uh, turnaround. And I have kind of forgotten heading into the Final Four that LSU did not have a national championship in women's basketball because I remember their five-year run from 2004 to 2008 where they lost to UConn or Tennessee, I think, several years in a row, and they made it to the Final Four five straight years. And so, for some reason, I was thinking they, at some point, had won a Nationals title, but they had not. And I think, you know, it was just big for them to to break through. Um, you know, they had a little bit of, um, I think, an under-the-radar season because South Carolina was so strong this year in the SEC. But I still cannot figure out how, at uh, 34-2, and LSU was considered to be a three-seed in the tournament. I think that may be the worst case of underseeding seeding I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, Joe, I think that was worse than UConn being a four-seed in men's. I mean, the only two games they lost all season is South Carolina beat them pretty badly both times they played them, which, by the way, until Caitlin Clark dropped 40 on South Carolina and they had that huge upset over them, they had beaten pretty much everybody by 25-plus points all season and South Carolina winning into this tournament is probably triple the kind of favorite that Alabama was going into the men's. I mean, South Carolina hadn't lost a game since the SEC championship two years ago. Like, I mean, yeah, that's how dominant they were.
1: Yeah, I, I can't figure it out. I mean, for them to not even just be a two seed, to be a three. Like, I, I could have made an argument that they should have been the number two overall seed, like, after – south carolina so I, I don't understand that at all but it didn't matter for them i guess they use that as motivation but just kind of the overarching storyline for me is that you know i was really impressed with this tournament i think that uh women's basketball is in a great state right now this season because there, there's been a lot of i think fatigue with how we've had just so many dominant programs like uconn and tennessee that win all the championships but i think that this year represented a layer of parody with LSU winning their first title and with um, Iowa having the great story of Caitlin Clark I think that when you add in um, a layer of parody and when you also add in um, the personalities that you now have um, in women's basketball that it, it draws a lot of interest
0: yeah Joe I mean you talk about the brashness and just the general like you know, kind of in your face nature of how good Caitlin Clark is. And then you also add in someone like Haley van Lith, uh, from, from Maryland or, or excuse me from Louisville that just got under so many people's skins, uh, including Caitlin Clark. And, you know, you had kind of like a bad girl kind of thing that I think added a lot to, to college basketball. And then, you know, of course, uh Caitlin Clark did kind of the, the ring thing and in the face to Haley Van Luth. And then Angel Reese does it to Caitlin Clark when they win and everyone suddenly loses their mind about Angel Reese. And, you know, I just love that that story's out there. And I personally didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I mean, you know, that's just kind of Angel Reese's thing. She's a, you know, she, she's a trash talker. And with as much trash as Caitlin Clark talked over the last month, kind of becoming the number one female athlete, I kind of get an LSU player after they just beat him by 20-plus points. wanted to say a little bit to her.
1: Yeah, well, it's built, you know, just a a developing rivalry too because, like I was uh, kind of alluding to, you have the personalities in women's basketball with the coaches, but you also have the players who, because of how the WNBA draft is structured in contrast to the NBA draft, these players get to these schools, they have to stay in college for so many years. So Kaitlyn Clark is not eligible for the WNBA draft until next year based on where her birthday falls. And actually, from an eligibility standpoint, if she wanted to, she could stay until 2025 because of the COVID year a few years ago, which would, so that's not going to happen. But that just shows you you know, the difference. And I think that having these players in the women's game stay at the same school for three or four years sometimes, that's what we're missing right now in the men's game.
0: That's right, Joe. When we come back, we're going to talk about jackets, including Kim Mulkey's jacket and the green jacket of the Masters, which Caitlin Clark likes the Masters. And uh, you can catch all of our episodes on Spotify. And as always, I'm Dan.
1: And I'm Joe.